Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hook segment. Today we're joined by a special guest, literary agent Dana Murphy. Now, Dana joined Trellis Literary Management in 2022 after a decade building her list at The Book Group. She represents a wide range of fiction and nonfiction for both adult and teen readers. And that's especially awesome because I know we don't have enough YA authors and specialists on the podcast. We're trying really hard to fix that for next year. So it's great to have Dana here who specializes in that. Books by her clients have been New York Times and international bestsellers and chosen as Barnes & Noble Discover, Book of the Month, Read with Jenna, Indie Next, and New York Times Editor's Choice Picks. Dana, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time out to join us. We look forward to hearing your very valuable input. Now, as usual, we're going to dive right in. Carly, will you kick us off with the first query letter? Well, I'm very pleased to report we are going down to two query letters an episode. This is going to give us so much more time to dive into everybody's content, have a bit more back and forth. So I know us at the podcast are really excited about this. So let's tackle these two. Dear Agent, Breaking News, Vampires Ravage, Southern California. My young adult novel, Redacted, follows Japanese-American teen Rei Kishimoto, whose hands burst into flames at random. 
As Ray searches for a way to control his powers, the Southern California town he lives in is invaded by vampires, vying for power and control of the town. But when the vampire leader discovers feeding on Ray gives her a wild energy high, he becomes their target. With the help of his love interest, a girl who can transform herself into a crow, they battle the vampires. Ray discovers his true powers. The energy in his hands, known as Reiki, simulates the healing. Told in the first person from Ray's point of view, this 67,000-word story addresses fitting in with others when you're different, love, corporate greed, and protecting the environment. I am a freelance writer and editor. I've judged over 2,000 short screenplays, stories, novels, and poems for NYC Midnight, as well as for Writer's Digest, self-published book and ebook awards. My screenplay, Redacted, placed as a quarter finalist in the 2023 Emerging Screenwriters Genre Screenplay Competition. I hold an MFA in writing from Goddard College. Thank you for considering my manuscript. I look forward to hearing from you soon. Best wishes, Redacted. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, can you give us your take on that? And then we'll ask Dana and Cece what they think. This one clocked in at 209 words. This might be one of the shortest query letters we've had on this podcast in quite a long time. You know, I simultaneously like want to applaud this because I love short query letters so much. And I also know how hard it is to get so much into a query letter, especially when there's kind of a bit of world building here. It is supernatural, right? So I do feel like we're potentially missing a little bit of world building here. You know, because it's so short, I want to know why the vampires are vying for power control of the town. I understand that they're vampires, they can do whatever they want. I mean, we have this whole like mythological lore of vampires in our head. They kind of live rent free. I don't need to, you know, go over the timeline of Twilight history for everybody on this podcast, but we all kind of understand what vampires are. So I don't know. I'm kind of torn about like how much world building we need in this because I simultaneously feel like agents who are looking for a YA novel about vampires will get it, right? And they'll be like, oh, this is or isn't something that I'm interested in. But for the sake of a strong query letter, I feel like there could potentially be a little bit of work to do. The next thing is discussing the themes and pitch letters. I personally don't love when we just like list off our themes. So it says, you know, fitting in with others when you're different, love, corporate greed, protecting the environment. It's one of my least favorite ways to like spend word count in a query letter, just because I feel like you can express a lot of that through the actual query letter itself through the plot. You know, when you talk about protecting the environment, you know, you guys will see in the sample to come that there are some themes, you know, of environmentalism that are going to come through, which we're actually going to get in the core of the writing. So this is why I feel like the query letter is a little bit short, you know, so I think this is just something for us to think about and discuss. Thank you, Carly. For our listeners, we will soon be sharing the details of next year's deep dive series. And for our science fiction fantasy writers, you're going to be very excited to know that one of the people in our lineup is the agent Dong Won Song, who specializes in science fiction fantasy. And they will be taking us through the kind of things that they look for in query letters and in submissions, etc. So I know this is a genre that we haven't focused that much on the podcast, but we are going to rectify that in the deep dive series. So look out for those details when we open up for booking of that, that series next year. All right. So Dana, what were your thoughts? Yeah, Carly touched on my two overarching thoughts for me. It was very much like Carly said, I was very impressed by the word count when I opened it, uh, when I first read through it, because as someone who was also writing copy yesterday for a pit, it was a good reminder of how hard it is to be <laughs> economical with your words. So truly, like Carly said, praise there. To me, I think 
the issue with the length is that we're missing a level of specificity that will let the pitch stand apart, right? There are a lot of stories about vampires, which also means vampires are a rich well for storytelling. And part of the job of good copy, which is essentially what you're writing in a query letter, is to show your readers why this vampire story is unique and worth picking up. And so the image coming to my mind is like, you've done a great job drawing out the sketch of a painting, and now it's time to kind of go in there and get your shading, get your details, get bring it to photorealism, right? Like whatever, I'll use a lot of mixed metaphors. That's kind of my way, but that's what I found. So I want, I found myself flagging, like, you know, in the pages we learn that this hands bursting into flames is a fairly new phenomenon. So do we get a sense of what's happening there, where it comes from? Is it related to the vampires? So like, can we get a bit more information about that? And, or you mentioned the help of a love interest. Is this someone that was already a known entity to the character? Or is this a love story that develops over the course of the book? Battling the vampires, that can look a lot of different ways. What does that look like for this story? So, so finding places to take phrasing or an idea that is quite broad when you actually look at the meaning behind it and figuring out how to whittle it away to say something more specific. Again, as Carly said, I think this relates to the themes. Those may be the themes of the book, but there's more specificity to be found there, right? If it is addressing corporate greed, is it pro-corporate greed or anti-corporate greed? Because addressing corporate greed does not tell me what the perspective of the book is, right? Like what the arguments or what the ideas the book is engaging with are. Yeah, but overall, again, really very impressed by the length. And I think there's only, it's a, it's a good starting point, right? Like you've got your scaffolding and you can kind of build out and, and dig deeper from there. Yeah, it's a really good problem to have for this author because we're normally saying it's way too long and you need to whittle it down. And in my opinion, that's always so much harder than going, well, throw more words at this. Cece, your take? Just building off that, I'm not sure if the plot paragraph should finish with the sentence, Ray discovers his true power, the energy in his hands known as Reiki stimulates healing. Because that to me felt a little lackluster. I really wanted to see how these plot points about the vampires coming up against him, the love interest, how it would culminate into a major dramatic question that was story forward and that made me feel really curious. So for example, he just found out that he can heal, but at the same time, his hands burst into flames. So is it a situation where he needs to learn how to control that so he can save a loved one, save more than one person, like a specific, specific situation? Is it that if the vampires get to him because of his powers, they'll grow even more powerful and then they'll become even more threatening to humans? So is he saving like all of California? I guess I just really wanted the major dramatic question to be more fleshed out because to me that's super important because it's the reason why people go, oh, I have to read this story. And I also want to say the author paragraph is super impressive. So congratulations. Thank you, Cece. Something I just wanted to mention there as well is in the pages, and Carly will discuss that, at the end of the first chapter, this character interacts or meets a woman called Katie. And if Katie is the love interest, I think it would serve them well to actually mention that Katie is the love interest in the query letter because we get given Jay is the only name we get in the query letter and while we do guard against putting in too many names in the query letter I would have liked to know okay that opening scene is the inciting incident for when Jay meets Katie otherwise I'm not sure why Katie is in that opening chapter so that's just from my side okay Carly will you tell us what was in those opening pages all right, so our main character, it is Ray. He is on the beach. 
he's talking about it's been five weeks since my palms burst into flame. So he's hanging up by the water, presumably to kind of counteract some of his powers. He's kind of feeling sorry for himself. He's watching some birds. He's watching this group of friends that feels like potentially would never be the type of people he'd be friends with, potentially are cooler than him. And he's kind of calls himself a goober, essentially. And I'm taking that line from the book. So the one of the girls jumps off the pier and appears to be struggling, um, potentially drowning. We're not too sure. Nobody's doing anything. So our protagonist kind of just like puts on his special gloves. We think they're probably to protect his hands, you know, just strips down into his swim trunks and goes off to help her. But we also learn in the pages that his mom has passed away and being near water makes him feel really close to her. So he talks about like jumping into the water, feeling close to his mom, but he ultimately can't reach the girl who's drowning. Lifeguards come, rescue the girl, but they also have to rescue our protagonist because he wasn't able to kind of make it into the water. They're doing some CPR. There is with the girl, there's kind of like you know, sea junk essentially kind of all around her. There's like masks and plastic and presumably she kind of got trapped by some plastic in the water. We also find out that they were filming something. We don't know if it's like a television show or commercial or movie, but it, she was supposed to jump into the water, but her potentially drowning was not part of the movie or play or, you know, commercial that they're filming. So it all kind of starts to come together about why they were there on the beach. And that's kind of where we end. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Okay, can you give us our take on that? Is it doing all the heavy lifting that we need that opening chapter to do? All right. So, you know, one of the things I really liked was this like fire water dynamic. I thought that was really interesting because we know he's kind of struggling with this. My palms can burst into flames, but I'm not really sure when the world building is going to start to happen because we understand he clearly understands that this is abnormal, but he's not specifically curious about it. He's kind of just like, oh, I feel sorry for myself. I'm not one of the cool kids. He's not like, hey, what's going on with these hands? But it's been five weeks since the palms burst into flame. So presumably he's had five weeks to digest this. However, as you know, the person who's critiquing this, I'm like, well, why didn't we start the book five weeks ago? Why are we starting the book today? That is very unclear to me about why today is the day that we need to start here. There's some lines that I really liked. You know, there was a line that said, four California pelicans lower their landing gear for arrival. I was like, that was so, so beautiful, right? It's like evoking the sense of a plane, but it's, you know, these pelicans coming down. There was some word choice that I didn't really love. You know, this kid's kind of saying like, they feel like a bit of a loser, essentially. And I have no idea like how old this kid is like I assuming it's teenage because it's a YA but he's like the same way guys like me are called all of these things dweebs dorks doofuses and goobers. I'm like, is that really the terminology that teens use these days like I, I don't know I'm like. I just couldn't, I, I couldn't figure out the real, like what was supposed to feel real here. And also again, what we're supposed to challenge in terms of world building, you know, when is the magic, the mystery, the the vampires, like when is all of that starting, you know, is, is going to kind of be, become clearer to us. He does feel pretty detached from a lot of what's happening. You know, he, he said at one point, my mom used to have me start all of our fires, but since our house burned down and took her with it, I've wanted nothing to do with it. But then he just like moves on to talking about the birds. I'm like, okay, we're just, we'll just skim over that, I guess. So, so yeah, I also felt like this whole like cool kids and not cool kids. I have a lot of mixed feelings about the cool kids versus the not cool kids tropes because it is timeless. And it is this sense of like teens feeling othered. This is again, 
timeless. But the way that he talks about the girl to start with, so he's so he's talking about birds a lot. And then he said, some chick off to the right plunges into the water near the end of the jetty. At first I was like, is this like a baby chick? Because we're like talking about animals. I'm like, oh no, he means like a girl chick. That is incredibly dehumanizing to women just to be like, mm, this chick, you know? I, don't, I just thought like, how odd was that choice? I don't know. I, as I said, I have mixed feelings about the cool kids versus not cool kids. And, you know, Cece and Dana obviously can can chime in on their thoughts along that as well. But yeah, I think those are, you know, I feel like I'm just repeating myself. So I'll throw it over to Dana for your thoughts. Yeah. So it's interesting, Carly, that you read it as him being a part of the shoot, because that was one of my main questions when I got to the end, is that I felt pretty confused of whether, what the logic of the circumstances this kid was in to the point Carly just pointed out, right? The word choice of chick aside, saying some chick just leaped into the water distances him from that person, right? So my assumption with that one single word choice is that he does not who this know who this person is and he thinks she is just jumping into the water. Not that he is working on this shoot, not that he is um, has any connection to these people or even recognizes her. And as the action plays out, the action itself is quite compelling. Like I think there's a good level of tension and pacing and especially in those later pages. But when I got to the end of the last page we were reading, I ended up pulling myself back to figure out that logic, right? Was he aware that this shoot was going on or does he think she was genuinely drowning? If he thought she was genuinely drowning, did he not see an entire film set near him nearby, which it seems that there's kind of a full set. I mean, if someone's truly yelling, cut and he has a director baseball cap it's probably not a gorilla shoot right it's probably they have a certain a certain setup there on the beach so does he not see them if that's the case why doesn't he see them right like what is the actual internal logic of this scene because pacing and tension is great but then if you hit a point where the logic behind that pacing intention doesn't play out and isn't consistent the pacing intention is moot, right? And I think the solution to that question like lies in quite minute changes. It lies in getting establishing what you want the reader to see in that space. If he is a part of the shoot, if he's not a part of the shoot and doesn't realize it, it's happening, if you purposefully want the reader to think he's not part of the shoot and then later reveal that he is part of the shoot, right? Like those three hypotheticals play out slightly differently on the page. And I think that's the kind of clarity we're missing in these pages. I'd love the author to think about when and how you're giving your reader information. That first paragraph has a lot of really lovely lines, but we're also getting a lot. We're getting the hands on fire. We're getting that his mother has passed. We're getting that her ashes are in this ocean, which is why he's there on the shore right now. And what we're missing is world building, right? Is it a sandy ocean? Actually, he he says water at first. So my first thought was, is this a pond? Is this a stream? Are we in the woods? Are we on the beach? Is this a sandy beach? Is this a cliff, right? That world building, which is essentially image building for your reader is really important up front. And I think there's opportunities to do really interesting things with this tension of what your reader knows and doesn't. To me, that moment on the second page that Carly pointed out, but since our home burned down and took her with it, I've wanted nothing to do with it. That's when I wanted to know that the mother was dead, right? Like, I think that's a really interesting twist and turn if that's the first moment you find out he's lost his mother, as opposed to saying and telling the reader 
in that first paragraph right away that he's there for rashes. And I think playing with that information giving will allow you to then find more space to do that world building that we're talking about elsewhere. Wonderful, Dana. Thank you. Yeah, I got the sense that he was definitely not a part of the shoot, that he was oblivious to it because he was so much in his head. But then I felt like the teenage girls who screamed to him for help, they would very much be aware of the shoot. They would be aware of the cameras and the filming, etc., etc. So for me, there was also a bit of plausibility there. Cece, you are our curiosity seeds queen. What is your take on this? I was sure he was not a part of the shoot because there's a part where he says, Looks like she's drowning and some joker standing on top of the jetty filming the whole thing, probably for his TikTok. Why doesn't he help her? And then we have the redhead saying, oh my God, somebody help, she's drowning. And then he strips his clothes. So one of my questions to the writer is, why is he only going in after the redhead said something? Because to me, that makes it seem like his heroism is only because someone prompted him. And I didn't love that as a protagonist. Like, I would either make it so that he didn't notice the drowning, he was looking at her thinking that she was playing in the water or something, and then when the redhead let him know, he went in, or remove what the redhead said or have him already be stripping his clothes off You know, by the time the redhead is, is talking. It sounds like a really small thing, right? Like a calibration, an order of events, but it makes a big difference because it determines what motivation is going through your protagonist's head as as he goes in the water. I very much like Dana thought that it was explanation heavy when it came to the excellent premise about the hands on fire, like, and also really intriguing premise about the mom having died. There's a reason why in like all of Disney, all the moms have died, you know, like it's sad. They love killing moms off because it really does point your protagonist in a situation where they're so vulnerable and they have this foundational wound that's so relatable. So I was very much like, uh, please stop telling me these lines. Please seduce me, you know, seduce me as opposed to to offering me this information in in a very, I don't know, maybe too objective of a way. I like that the writer knows all the foundational wounds. I like that the writer knows the protagonist's mindset. This is incredibly valuable and you should know. I come across a lot of pages where they don't. I ask them questions like, what is going on through their head? And people have no idea. And I'm like, well, you should know. So this writer is right on when it comes to knowing what the protagonist is thinking about, what wounds he's experiencing, what hurt is going through his heart. I just don't think you have to offer it all up. So this is sort of like the opposite of the query letter. I think you need to pull this back in a little. When it comes to the query letter, we need a little bit more. So I'm mindful, by the way, that this is like, it, it feels like this impossible thing, right? Like a little bit more, a little bit less, and it's all a matter of taste, but that it's really good overall. Thank you, Cece. Dana? Yeah, Cece actually just reminded me of another detail that I think is a good example of the internal logic that we were talking about. The camera guy on the bluff above her when she jumps, right? When our main character references that camera guy, the initial image in my head was someone holding an iPhone, right? He's probably taking something for a TikTok. Later in the pages, he seems to be referred to as a legitimate camera guy once it's revealed that it's a shoot. And so again, a moment where I was like, well, if he's standing on the beach and looking at this man, if he's holding a film camera or a camera that's meant to be shooting something professional, his mind is not going to go to TikTok. It's going to go to what is this film shoot? So maybe it's a film shoot that they're doing on an iPhone and that will be revealed later. That I don't know, fully possible. But that was another moment where I was like, 
hold on, let me rewind because the image I was given of this moment from our author now doesn't match the truth that I'm being told about this moment, at least as far as the information I have in these pages, obviously. Yeah, that's something I flagged as well in terms of the, the plausibility. So something to have a look at. But otherwise, the writing on the line level was really strong. The author used some excellent verbs. They used winch as a, a verb in a way that was extremely evocative. In my notes that will be uploaded to Kofi, there's a lot of notes on the line level. So for those of you who are interested in line level sort of notes, definitely take a look at that feedback on Kofi. All right, Cece, will you read us the next query letter, please? Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, a big thank you for the invaluable resources you share on The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. It's my source of inspiration and motivation that has helped me throughout my writing slash querying journey. I cannot thank you enough for everything you do for the writing community. Cece, since you like stories about dysfunctional families, I hope you'd consider Princessly, 72,000 words, an adult contemporary humor novel about a dysfunctional royal family. Set in a fictional island country in Indian Ocean, it brings in references from South Asian and European culture. Inspired by the comic genius of P.G. Woodhouse and the royal vibes of Princess Diaries, it will appeal to fans of Ms. Demeanor by Eleanor Lipman. Meet Princess Samyuta, a.k.a. Princess Sam of Debgar, the perfect embodiment of the idle rich. Not a fan of royal rules, she enjoys dilly-dallying about in San Francisco with no intentions of returning home. One fine day, her cousin, who needs saving from a political betrothal, lures Sam back to Debgar. But things get muddied up when the groom-to-be Andy is betrothed to Sam instead, as her cousin gets cold feet in the nick of time. Now, there's only one way to break this dotty alliance and get out of the rot. Make Andy call quits. Or else Grandmama, the queen, will be livid, and Sam might as well jump into the ocean and make peace with the sharks. In order to bait Andy, Sam plans a fiasco dinner, invites a trickster beauty to rile him up, and digs through his personal belongings for evidence against him. But Andy doesn't even wobble in the slightest. With the official engagement announcement around the corner, Sam is running out of options. But finally, she discovers Andy's secret. He's planning to steal her money and elope with his girlfriend. Bingo. Now all Sam has to do is prove it. So she plots to trap Andy and his girlfriend red-handed. But instead, things go awry and she finds herself stowing away her unconscious ex and dealing with a priceless stolen portrait. The future looks bleak, only to be saved by some higher intelligence. I am a daytime engineer, nighttime writer, and 24-7 toddler mom. I am also a member of WFWA and founder of hashtag JoyPitchEvent. Looking forward to hearing from you. Sincerely, Anima. Thank you, Cece. I'm a huge PG Woodhouse fan, have been for years, so that always piques my interest. I love stories about dysfunctional families, so thank you so much for sharing this with me. I have not read Miss Demeanor, but now I want to because I looked it up and it sounds amazing. I do have a few suggestions when it comes to the plot paragraph that I just wrote it out for you so our Kofi subscribers will be able to see this. Things to make this seem a little bit more in active. But uh, overall, the plot paragraph is, is is doing an amazing job of letting me know like causality of events, how things escalate, what her goal is, what's in the way. 
I will say, though, that when it came to the last sentences, things go awry and she finds herself stowing away her unconscious ex and dealing with the portrait and the future's looking bleak and there's like a higher intelligence that needs to save them. When it came to that part, I was like, I don't get how this comes together. I don't know who this ex person is and what painting are we talking about? And when you say that a future and a higher intelligence is the only thing that can save you, are you suggesting a speculative element will be introduced? I just got really confused with that. So I almost wonder if you can end your query letter earlier. You can say that, you know, in order to get out of the engagement, she's going to go through all these shenanigans until she finds out about a secret of his and that creates you know, something even bigger. Like, I don't think you need all the details after she discovers his secret. I think you can stop there. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Dana, we turn it over to you. Yeah. To to spin off of what Cece was saying, I think those paragraphs are really strong. What I found myself struggling with them as far as the plotting goes is whether, not whether the stakes are enough, but whether you're articulating the stakes these stakes in a strong enough way. So essentially what I mean by that, right, is textually in this letter, it seems that the outcome that this character is dreading is disappointing her grandmother. And yes, uh, having the queen of a small country be very mad at you is probably very high stakes in some ways. But I wanted a bit more as far as the stakes around why this marriage falling through materially matters. Is it, is it the money? Is it that he is somehow allowed to sort of circumvent their role in this, in this royalty? And, and what does not marrying him solve for Sam? What does she want as an alternative? Is it just this beautiful idol life that she, that she treasures and doesn't want to give up? Those are strong stakes, but that, that piece of the puzzle wasn't clear to me in, in the plotting. And I think like Cece smartly pointed out, we get a bit too much of the actual plot beats than we need for a synopsis like this. And instead, I want that space to be used to articulate why those plot beats matter or what is really at stake for this character at the heart of the book. Thank you, Dana. Right, Kali? All right, I agree with everything else that's been said. I'll just try to add a couple points here. Uh, so I, I think pitching this as a humor novel is challenging. You know, we've said this before, and, and I'll definitely say it again, which is that humor is actually the most difficult thing to pitch in the world because everybody thinks that something different is funny. So it's one thing to think that you are funny, and obviously be told that you're funny, and I'm sure that many people are funny, but it's kind of like when I talk about how I don't want themes in a query letter. It's like, you're telling me how I'm going to feel. And if you're telling me that this is funny, I have very high expectations that I'm going to be laughing. So I would probably just pitch this as like commercial fiction and that would save you the trouble and then let the humor show, you know, like let it come through in the writing. You know, if you do kind of want, this is a bit of a voicey pitch, you know, there's things like he's planning to steal her money and elope with his girlfriend, bingo. Like it's kind of a voicey pitch in that sense, but it also comes off a bit synopsis-y because there's also a line that says like one fine day, her cousin who need, you know, like that's super synopsis like. So I think there's just a balance here that just hasn't been figured out yet in terms of that that tone and when to let voice show through and when to let you know the writing show through. I definitely agree with this line about higher intelligence. I also wanted to point out that it sounds supernatural, but I also thought the alternative meaning could be like intelligence officers, like, you know, intelligence in terms of the higher intelligence needed to run this country, whether it's like CIA equivalent, you know, what I'm trying to say. So 
intelligence officers, like that type of thing. So I'm like, I need to know, is this supernatural or is this like government intelligence? That needs to be super clear. Great, Carly. Thank you very much. Yeah, and that's something that's quite easy to fix there. All right, Cece, we're throwing it back to you. What was in those opening pages? Our last submission started with birds, and this one starts with bird poop. Essentially, there is bird poop landing in the protagonist, and she's not happy about it because who would be? And this actually confirms her suspicions that, you know, there's impending doom. She woke up this morning and she just knew that things were odd. And she had a sense of impending doom. So she's at the cafe where she goes all the time for the past two years. And she goes into a public restroom for the first time in her life. She's never been inside of one, but she has to clean up the bird poop. And that's just life. She leaves and she's enjoying her coffee when her cousin shows up. And her cousin, you know, is, is just flew over to see her. And she's like, I have to talk to you about something. So they go over to her penthouse, which seems to be really close to the cafe. And when she gets there, she realizes that her housekeeper, who was supposed to show up at 8 a.m. and is basically noon at this point, is not there. And, you know, her cousin's talking to her about her life. And there's a lot of luxury references going on, things like, why don't you have a lady's maid? All you have is a housekeeper. And they talk about fashion. And, yeah, that's that's essentially what happens. Oh, sorry. Important thing. Her cousin says, I have something really important to talk to you about, but we don't find out what it is yet. Great, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was your take on them? I really loved that we were always in scene. I know how hard it is to keep the reader grounded in a space when you have all these elements that go into a story, including interiority. So the writer did a really good job there. I am not, and I'm sure people already know this, a fan of intuition that is proven right. I find it to be plot convenient. The protagonist waking up and knowing that things are going to go bad, feels unearned. Remember, like when plot is counting on the protagonist to announce itself, the reader can't feel that too because they don't have the intuition, right? So again, I am not a fan, so I would scrape that entirely. If you want my vision, that's my vision. My vision is she wakes up and it's a regular day or it doesn't necessarily have to be a regular day, but then it can't be because of intuition. I also got really hung up on the fact that she had never been in a public restroom before. And I feel silly pointing this out because maybe maybe it is entirely possible, but I'm like, how does this lady live in San Francisco? And she hangs out at cafes, right? Because that's something she does. And she's never been inside a public restroom. Like, does she not leave the the radius of her apartment and I guess friends' houses. Like I was just very confused and I didn't believe that. I was like, oh, you've never even been there to like wash your hands, like look in the mirror. And if it is true, then her experience going into one for the first time did not feel realistic. Like I feel like she would have been like hung up on the smell. The smell would have assaulted her first. And then she would have noticed all these things that she didn't think existed in in a public restroom. I don't know what these things are for someone who's never been inside of one, but I'm sure your brain will be able to come up with something. So yeah, I really wanted just to not be hung up on that because the believability got in the way. Her interaction with her cousin, I really liked it, but I didn't think it was super realistic when it came to their physical selves. Like she has blue hair. Clearly this is something that is very out of character for her. And her cousin talks for, I don't know, a minute before she mentions the hair. Now, maybe this is intentional on the cousin's part. She doesn't want to show her surprise. It could be a power move. But then the protagonist should be thinking, when is she going to say something about my hair? You know, Because when you change your hair, that's something that, that usually stands out in in your head. So 
yeah, overall, I would say that this is polished. I appreciate being always in scene, but I would remove the intuition entirely. Thank you, Cece. Okay, Dana, what's your take? Sure. So I very much agree with Cece. I think the author does a great job of staying in scene and staying present and sort of putting one foot before the other narratively. The layer that was missing for me in these pages is that extra layer of context for these characters. So right, the three of us read the query letter that tells us that this person is a secret princess, that, or maybe not secret, but is a part of a royal family that she is not currently with, that she does not live where she is from, that she has constructed this life for herself and will now be called back to this former life of hers in one way or the other, right? We have that context because we've read the letter, but your job as a writer is to also build that context into your pages in a natural and organic way. And in these pages, there's no mention of really any of those details other than the kind of contextual details of having never been in a public bathroom before, right? Like that is striking, but we don't necessarily have then the touchstone as to who this person is that then would make that true, right? Similarly, I, I felt that that lack of a layer of context that is is your job to give to the reader was really was really missing for me in those pages again because you can't guarantee your readers will read your jacket copy before they pick up your book. They may not. And by no means do I mean that the solution there is to, in your first page, say, my name is this and I am from here and I am part of a royal family, right? Like that also isn't interesting. That's not what we're suggesting, but it's a matter of creating a whole picture of this person and your reader needs that context to better understand. For example, she uses Britishisms. She says Lou. And so without any of that context, my first thought is, okay, I guess she's British, right? That is the logical dot to connect if you have no other context about a character, which isn't the case, obviously. There is colonialism at play here. She's using Britishisms and there's no other context to say where, where she is from beyond her use of that language. And so part of the job here is remembering that your reader only has the information you give them on the page. And so is that information doing its job well enough to create the same level of character detail that's in your mind for your reader? Thank you, Dana. A piece of advice I want to give to the author here is there, I think where the problem is arising here is we have a lot of telling. We get told that this is her first time in a public bathroom. If you showed us her getting lost, trying to make her way to a public bathroom and going, why is this so small? Where are the gold taps? Where are the gold gilted mirrors that I normally see in the palace bathrooms? then boom, we, the reader can see for themselves this is the first time in a public bathroom. Why is she comparing this to palace bathrooms? Is she royalty, etc.? So there's a lot a reader can infer if you are showing us rather than just telling us. So there is a lot of opportunity there for the world building there. Okay, Carly, we're taking it across to you now. I think that was an incredible analysis. I don't have too much to add other than I really did like the dynamic between the two women. I thought that was incredibly interesting. And I loved that kind of that back and forth and, and how complicated that relationship was. So I really, I really enjoyed that. And then I'll just echo what Dana said about context. You know, I just really wanted to understand for the reader's sake, why all of this mattered. And that's it. Thank you, Carly. So for our listeners, I did do extensive notes on the writing at the line level, sort of giving suggestions for elevation and where perhaps overwriting happens. And this is something that happens with not just emerging authors. I'm busy looking at my latest novel and I've just taken out 8,000 words based on purely overwriting because 
at certain points in the story, we just we don't trust ourselves enough because we don't know the story well enough. We don't know the characters well enough. So there's certain parts here that where whole sentences, perhaps whole paragraphs, can be taken out because the author's doing a good job and yet they're not really trusting themselves. So go take a look at those notes as well. Right, Dana, thank you so, so much for joining us. It was a pleasure chatting with you. You're so welcome. Thanks for yeah, having me. Yeah, thank you. And let's now go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's 
today's guest is the New York Times and internationally best-selling author of Girl in Translation and Mumbo in Chinatown. Her work has been published in 20 countries and is taught in universities, colleges, and high schools across the world. She's been selected for numerous honors, including the American Library Association Alex Award, the Chinese American Librarians Association Best Book Award, and the Sunday Times EFG Short Story Award International Shortlist. She received her bachelor's degree from Harvard University and earned an MFA from Columbia University. She is fluent in Chinese, Dutch, and English and divides her time between the Netherlands and New York City. It's my pleasure to welcome Jean Kwok. Jean, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. The book we're talking about today, which is The Leftover Woman, was a Good Morning America book club buzz pick, CBS New York book club top three pick, book of the month pick, and a library reads top 10 pick selected by library staff across America. It was featured in the New York Times, Time, L, People, NPR, the New York Post, Variety, and more. These are incredible, incredible accolades for a book. Now, we're going to discuss the book shortly, but what our listeners, who are mostly emerging authors, Jean, what they love to hear from is successful authors in terms of their journeys to publication. And yours has been an especially fascinating one from the research that I've done, starting with your brother Quan giving you a black diary. Now, I know that's a lot of ground to cover, but can you take us through that from that moment to this moment in terms of, of your journey, writing, publishing, getting your MFA, finding your agent, everything? <laughs> All right. Well, that is that is a journey. I was not someone who ever thought I would become a writer. There are writers who, from the time they were five years old, were already scribbling little stories. People whose parents were journalists or intellectuals or writers themselves. And they knew from the beginning that this was a worthy field and that this was what they were meant for and it was all they wanted to do. I came from a place of no faith, sadly. I was a first-generation immigrant. I moved from Hong Kong to New York when I was five years old, and we were incredibly poor. So we lived in an apartment in New York City that did not have even a working heating system. So there was ice on the inside of my windows all winter long. The building was literally falling down around our ears. It was infested with roaches and rats. And I worked in a Chinatown clothing factory from the time I was about five years old. So for most of my childhood, I was really a working class kid who didn't speak English and struggled to survive. And the only thing I wanted to do was actually to overcome this life at the factory and escape it one day and have a real job, you know, a normal job that earned money and made sure you were kept out of homelessness and that sort of thing. Of course, also to make things worse, I grew up in a very male-dominated society and family where it was not considered necessary for a girl to get a great education or have a great career. I could also just marry somebody and take care of him, clean for him, cook for him, bear him sons. No daughters, only sons. But 
I was a terrible cook, am still a horrible housekeeper, have my own opinions, etc., etc. So all of that was not going to go very well. They despaired of ever finding someone willing to marry me. And so I was just struggling to leave that factory. And it's indeed one night while we were working so hard. My brother came home after a long day at the factory and second shift at a restaurant, waiting tables till the middle of the night. And he laid a package on my pillow. And instead of giving me a toy or a Barbie or a piece of candy, he gave me something that would change my life. He gave me a blank diary and he said, whatever you write in this will belong to you. And that was such a powerful idea for someone like me who felt very lost and confused in this whole new culture. And from that day on, I started to write and keep a diary, but I did not write creatively. I didn't, it just didn't occur to me to write stories. I just wrote about myself and my feelings and my thoughts. And well, to make a long story short, knowing that I had this choice between the factory or finding some dude willing to marry me, I decided to go to Harvard instead. And that is what I did. So I learned English. I worked very hard in school. And it was at Harvard that I was sitting down one night working on a physics problem set because I was a physics major. And I wrote a poem. And I was so shocked. I felt like I had laid an egg. But then it occurred to me that I could actually become a writer. And and I loved books. I mean, I was a reader from the moment I could read English. So I read and read and read. And that was always my solace, my salvation, my inspiration was reading. So I read incessantly my entire life. So it was only in college that I realized I could actually also write things that maybe other people would want to read. And that began my journey as a writer. I graduated. I needed a day job. I worked for a few years as a professional ballroom dancer of all things. I went back to Columbia. I got my MFA in fiction. And years later, I had written, it took me 10 years to write my debut novel. And actually an agent, a big agent had signed me while I was at Columbia because of the promise I showed. But sadly, when I finished this draft after more than a decade, because it took me so long to learn how to write a novel, I sent it to him and he said three things. He said, number one, Jean, there's no market for this book. Number two, if you need any suggestions for a new agent, I'd be happy to give them to you. So he dumped me. And three, congratulations on being a mother. So that was very clear, the subtext in what he said. Uh, (laughs) No, and that was the moment when I came the closest to quitting that I ever had. And I recovered after about a month. I sent it out again to the biggest agents I knew. The top, I didn't know any agents because I was also a terrible networker and shy and awkward and would run away after watching people I admired speak, which is not what I would recommend for any aspiring writers out there. It's really much better to go up and introduce yourself. I was just so clueless and awkward and I just couldn't do it. So I went into the slush pile of these huge agents 
And I knew they would all reject me. But I thought, you know, reject away, just reject away. And I will go to the next 10, they'll reject me. And I'll just keep on getting rejected until I get to number 600 or whoever takes me. And that will be that. And if that doesn't happen within a year, then I will reevaluate my life and see if maybe I just don't have the talent to be a writer. And miraculously, within a week, I had already gotten offers of representation and signed with an incredible agent who is the head of William Morrow Endeavor and is my agent today and went on to sell the book as was, it was the same manuscript, exactly the same that had been rejected. And it went on to become an international bestseller. Oh my word, Jean. I, I love this story so much for so many different reasons. And for our listeners out there, the part that resonates the most, actually I've got hairs standing up on my arm, is the fact that Jean was told there is no market for this book. And yet the exact same book then went on to become a bestseller. And I hate, I would hate to think, Jean, if you had listened to him and if you had given up, because like you said, you were so close to it. Absolutely. I was not as connected or as savvy as your listeners are today because they are listening to podcasts like yours. I mean, I, I was very isolated and I wasn't in a writing group. Nobody else had read it. And if you compared me, a little person who had written this book in her attic and not let anybody read it and had not been edited by anyone to him, who is a major New York agent who has represented people we have all heard of, who knows more about the market? Like there's no contest that he knew much, much more about what was going to sell and what was going to work than I did. And yet he was wrong. And I think that sometimes the biggest no's in our life are the biggest yeses. And I would have done anything at that moment to have him say, oh, yes, the book is great. I'm going to take it out. I'm going to try to sell it. But if I had he thought of me as a little writer and he thought of me as someone that he could maybe, you know, do a quiet publication and squeeze in, hopefully, if somebody was feeling very generous. While my agent today saw me as a star from the moment she read the manuscript and she put me out there as a star and as the next great writer and that this was a book that was going to change and influence lives across the world. And because of that, that also became a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so sometimes you have these big rejections and they are devastating, but they are also doorways into a new phase of your life. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And please tell me, Jean, that you are a petty, petty individual, because if this was me, once that book was a New York Times bestseller, I would have wrapped it up and posted it to him and been like, enjoy your day. Please tell me that, that you've since seen him and said something. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, I don't need to say a word because the book was sold at auction in a major deal within, I think, a month of him losing it. And so it was supremely clear. It, there was no time for any type of revisions or massive changes. It was in the trade newspaper for, as the deal of the day for days. And I mean, the very fact of who my agent is, we know each other in the field. 
it's very clear the status of the book in my career with the team that I have surrounding me and the editor who bought it is major, major editor. Believe me, he knows. He absolutely knows. And he never reached out to me in all these years. That book, I mean, was Girl in Translation, my debut novel, and it is in, taught in schools around the world. And he, he never reached out to say congratulations, which I think is a pity because one of the agents I had sent to had passed it on to a junior agent at the same firm. And the junior agent had waffled about taking it and then had gone a little bit back and forth and then had ultimately written to me and said, no, thank you so much. But I, I'm afraid the book is a little bit too quiet for me. And I didn't say anything. I just said, oh, thank you so much for your consideration, even though I had already signed with an agent a hundred times her size at that point. But when that deal broke soon after that, that junior agent wrote to me and she said, Jean, I am kicking myself. <laughs> I am just kicking myself. And I wrote back and I said, thank you so much. I appreciate that you reached out to me again. But the truth is the major agents who had offered for me had offered within a week. I mean, I said, it wouldn't have made a difference. By the time you contacted me, I had already signed. By the time you got the manuscript, I had already signed and had had other options for signing. So thank you. But some agents had reacted very quickly and some had not. Yeah, geez. I, and yeah, being able to admit when you're wrong, I think is is one of the biggest life lessons people can learn. So I hope he is out there and very much aware that, that he was wrong, even though he didn't actually reach out to say so. You said in another interview that I looked up, you said, I'm afraid so much of the time. I just don't let it stop me from doing what I want to do. Most things in my life that I've done, I was terrified when I did them. I promised myself long ago that I would never allow fear to stop me doing something I truly wanted to do. And that promise has made a great difference in my life. Can you speak a bit about that, Jean? Because we have so many of our listeners, women especially, who suffer from imposter syndrome, who are really terrified to put themselves out there like that. Can you talk about overcoming that? I am a very anxious person. <laughs> so <laughs> I understand this really well. And I have to do things that are scary all the time. Even my very first interview when I was published it was terrifying to me. And I think that you have to know what you want and you have to keep in your mind what you want. And you have to know that in order to get there, you're going to have to go through the fear forest. You know, there's no other way. But bad things are not going to happen to you. The worst thing that somebody can do to you is they can reject you and they can say mean things to you. And that has happened to me. I have got negative reviews. I have had teachers say, you have no talent. And you know, I mean, my first agent, the person I had kind of hung my entire career on, said to me, there is no market for your book. I mean, he wasn't even like, oh, it's going to be difficult. He was like, there is zero, nothing, no chance, no market. And what's hard is when we let that advice in, when we kind of let it penetrate the outer surface of who we are, you have to not let it do that. I mean, you have to preserve your internal integrity and know I am a good person. I am doing my best. 
I personally don't make judgments. I try not to make judgments about my work. I think it's my job to produce my work. It's the job of the world to judge it. And believe me, they will. So I just work on producing the work. And I try to do the best work that I can as who I am. And what everybody else says, you know, that's their problem. And even when it's praise, I also try not to let it go to my head. I think, well, that's very nice. But if you let the praise in, you'll let the criticism in as well. So I think it's wonderful if people are kind about the book and think my work is good. But ultimately, praise or criticism, that's external to the work itself. All I think about is how do I create the work that I enjoy and love the best. Yeah, such excellent advice. And also, that's the only thing you have control over, right? In You have no control over how people are going to perceive your work, what they bring to the table when they're reading your work, how they might experience it. But you have control of producing the best damn book you possibly can. And that's what you should focus on. So that brings us to, so for our listeners, The Leftover Woman is an evocative family drama and a riveting mystery about the ferocious pull of motherhood for two very different woman. Jasmine Yang, who arrives in New York from her rural Chinese village, fleeing a controlling husband on a desperate search for her daughter, who was taken from her at birth. And then also Rebecca Whitney, who's a publishing executive, who seems to have it all, including a hired nanny to help her balance the demands of being a working wife and mother. Now, when we have these dual POV kind of stories, we expect a collision course of narrative voices. Now, something we say on the podcast all the time, Jean, is that our listeners need to be very intentional when it comes to picking the kind of point of view that they use as well as the tense, right? So in your book, you've got Jasmine's in the first person past tense and Rebecca's in the third person present tense. Can we speak a bit about the intentionality you brought to those POVs, why you chose each one for each of those characters? Oh, absolutely. And I think that one of the best ways I have learned my craft and learned how to write a novel is by reading books that are interesting to me. And sometimes I don't read like a normal reader. Of course, I read for pleasure as well. But nowadays, I read a lot for craft. And I will take a book like mine, and I will outline it, and really take it apart to figure out how exactly does she create this situation and this tension? Uh, What was she thinking? Where does it peak? Where are the twists? How is that thing actually designed? And that has really taught me so much about writing my own work. And so The Leftover Women is indeed these two mothers on a collision course, two very different women. Jasmine is Chinese from rural China. She's young. She is the birth mother and she desperately wants her child back, but she's got no money, no power. Rebecca is white affluent with a high-powered career in publishing. So that's also interesting. The Leftover Woman is also an insider's look at publishing. It's the stuff nobody tells you about what goes on behind the scenes when a book is sold, when they're fighting for an author, when there's an auction, the Frankfurt Book Fair for international rights, all of that kind of stuff. So Rebecca is a high-powered modern career woman who's trying to juggle all these balls in the air while 
really truly loving her adopted daughter. So plot-wise, we have a real point of conflict that the reader is going to be like, well, how's this going to work out? In terms of the structure of the book, it is like a puzzle because you've got these two women and these two alternating points of view. When I first wrote the draft, both Rebecca and Jasmine were in first person because I find it easier to really be in the voice when it's in first person. I realized after a while that it might be confusing to the reader. And so I shifted the tenses. I had Jasmine in past and then Rebecca in present, but I still thought it was a little bit too similar. And also what I did at the beginning was that I had them alternate like mechanically, almost like a clock. It was like Jasmine, Rebecca, Jasmine, Rebecca, Jasmine, Rebecca. But then I realized that was not serving my story. Everything has to serve your story and your work and your themes. So I realized it was not serving my story to have this mechanical going back and forth because you need to cut from one point of view to the other at a point when the reader is not going to kill you because you don't want them to be like dangly off a cliff and then cut because that really irritates me. But you want it to be somewhat resolved and yet there are a lot of issues and then cut to the other one when it's meaningful and then you're kind of bringing up other issues. So for example, how I changed it is that Jasmine actually has the first, I think two or three chapters. I can't remember exactly. We learn that she has a child and that's when we cut to Rebecca because the moment we see Rebecca with her adopted child, we know we're smart. We're smart readers. We know, oh my God, that's the same kid. And so it gives a kind of narrative tension to Rebecca that we wouldn't have if we cut to her without knowing who she was in terms of the broader story. And then I chose finally to put Rebecca in close third because it felt right. I mean, I love Rebecca's character. I have a great deal uh, of myself in Rebecca, but I'm not white. And so I thought it was fitting to put a little bit of distance between me and her by putting her in third and that for the reader, it would become just an easier follow to have one voice in first and one in close third. Yeah, it worked excellently. And two things I want to break down there before I ask some more questions on that is I'm not at all surprised that you take books apart uh, to see how the sausage is made. Because I think you said in an interview once that you used to take clocks and mechanisms apart as a child to figure out how they worked. So that makes complete sense in terms of you as a person. And I love the publishing insight that this book brought as well. This year was actually a great year in terms of books being published in which we got a lot of insider insights into the publishing industry because another book that gave us a lot of that was Yellow Face, gave us a lot of what happens behind the scenes as well. So for our listeners who are also interested in behind the scenes in publishing, these are two great books to look at as well. A question I have for you, Jean, is at what point did you start playing around with these POVs and tenses? Is it a case of you wrote the first draft and then you went back to do it? Or is it a case of you were finding your way into the story, trying to nail the narrative voice and sort of like a third of the way in, we're like, this isn't working, so I'm going to go back and change it. Well, that is a fascinating question. Before I answer that, I just wanted to mention that it's 
just been announced by Indigo in Canada that both Yellowface and The Leftover Woman are on their top 10 list of books for the year. So that is um, very exciting and fun. I love uh, Yellowface and Rebecca as well. So about the POVs and the structure, I start my books usually with an idea and sometimes with a feeling, sometimes with the twist, and then I have to find the voice. And I found Jasmine's voice first. And then when I have the voice, I, you know, I brainstorm with the voice a lot. But I, while I'm brainstorming, I am also looking ahead. This is why it's not taking me 10 years to write a book anymore. Um, it's taking me more like, I don't know, two to three, because I, I do a lot more planning than I used to. And also a book like The Leftover Woman is much more complex in terms of structure than my debut novel, Girl in Translation. And so The Leftover Woman is hopefully a very thrilling read for the reader from beginning to end and propulsive and fun, but there's an extremely complex architecture underneath the surface to make it all work so that the twists and all the timeline shifts and everything actually work in real time. I think that as a writer, we have to know that for every book we write, there are two timelines. One timeline is the actual timeline of events, as in, in October, this happened, and then in November, this happened, and then this happened. And that's the real timeline that we have to keep straight. But the other timeline, which is much more important in terms of pacing and structure and the ultimate success of your book in terms of readers, is the timeline in which the order in which you give the reader the information and that timeline is different from the true timeline of events i mean look a simpler novel the true timeline will more or less be the timeline in which you give the information to the reader but if you want to make things really suspenseful and you want the reader to have twists and turns and gasps and oh my gosh what is happening what where is that happening it's all about the order in which you give them the information so that they are not confused But they are still wondering questions that have yet to be answered. And not always, because if they haven't happened yet, sometimes it can be, well, wait, wait, what did they do at the Frankfurt Book Fair? You know, who slept with whom at the Frankfurt Book Fair? So questions like that are all things that I'm thinking about as I'm developing the voices, the characters, and the points of view. So I had Jasmine's voice, I had her point of view, and I wanted to bring the story more into the modern world and more into the Western world. Her world was too isolated and too much purely in the Asian world, in the Asian language. And so then I thought of Rebecca. And the moment I thought of Rebecca, I basically had the book because then I could see the ways in which those two stories could interact and build up to an exciting twist, exciting climax and an ultimate finish. I love that because we're always saying on the podcast that at the beginning of the story, you are circling the building of your story to try and find a way in. And when I write, I do not write a whole draft first. For me, I cannot continue until I'm very happy with how I've nailed the narrative voice, whether it's this 
third person close or third or omniscient or whatever the case may be is, once I feel like I've really nailed that, then everything comes into focus for me as I go along. And I'm exactly like you. My current book is a puzzle in that I'm trying to figure out the order in which information needs to be put in. And thank goodness for Scrivener. I don't know what you write in Jean, but I am moving those files around like crazy in Scrivener, up and down the pages, the order changes. Do you work in Word or do you also work in Scrivener that makes it easier for you to move the puzzle pieces around? Bianca, we are soul sisters because I could not live without Scrivener. (laughs) I am such a fan of Scrivener and I am like you in that way, in that I So what I'll do fairly early on in the book, I will have a very rough outline. And by rough, I mean maybe like with three big plot points, you know, the beginning, the middle and the end, <laughs> like where I kind of know, I, I know roughly that this kind of exciting thing is going to happen in the middle, maybe at the climax and at the end of the book. I do use three act structure. I think very much about three act structure, even though I'm not... I'm not a slave to it in that I, if my big twist happens further than the 50% point, I'm happy with that. I let it go organically, but I cannot fully plot or see the book until I have the beginning down. And so there are writers who can actually plot the entire book and they can just write it. Uh, And there are writers who don't know anything and have a natural instinct for bringing the book from beginning to end. But for me with The Leftover Women, I had a very, very rough idea of how the book was, the arc of the book, the very large arc of the book. And then I had to go back and write the beginning. I had to write the beginning in to the extent and polish it so that it was good and that I felt it was right and that I heard the voice clearly and that I understood the characters. And once I had that, I could write roughly and, you know, I could move forward and leave it in rough form, but I would constantly go back to my opening as a kind of touchstone, thematically, mood-wise, voice-wise, everything. I would just go back to feel what I was really doing as I push forward. But like you, you know, what I do, I also do constantly is I go forward and back. So I zoom in and out, write a bunch of material, and then I'll go back and I'll outline it. And I'll outline it so that, and Scriveners are natural for that because your scenes are, of course, have little titles for what actually happens in that scene. And I will constantly look at that outline to make sure that the pacing of my book is good. I do think that obviously character, voice, themes, all of that stuff is so important. But to be really honest with you, I think that the pacing, if you can nail the pacing of your novel, it will succeed. And by succeed, I have a very narrow definition. I mean that it will be published and people will buy copies of it. We can be successful for ourselves in many, many different ways. But I think that for just publishing success, if you can nail the pacing of a book, your chances of success are tremendous. And after that, you know, of course, the voice, the characterization, the level of thought, all of those things are also extremely important for the level of the book. But we've seen bestsellers that are horribly, horribly written, but yet 
they will almost always have that pacing down. So I'm always looking at the pacing in my Scrivener outline, uh, like you, Bianca. Yeah, Jean, I have interviewed hundreds of authors for this uh, podcast, and I truly believe I've found my writing soulmate because we work, it sounds like exactly, exactly the same. And I've never found anybody who does that. So, so that has been fascinating as well. Our time is unfortunately up. I don't know how the heck that happened. This has been such a, an amazing, amazing interview. Jean, thank you so, so much for that. For our listeners, we are going to link to the leftover woman on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Um, if you buy the book there, you support an independent bookstore and you support the podcast. But it's also amazing to hear that The Leftover Woman is having success in Canada, in Indigo. So for our Canadian listeners, definitely go and uh, and get Jean's book from there as well. Jean, we hope to have you back again soon. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.